Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord and ask His blessing on the preached Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard many voices, many messages, many claims to truth. We spend most of our hours every week hearing the world talk to us, hearing the world flatter and seduce us with its promises, with its compliments, with its excuses, its temptations. Now we come to hear your word. And it says such different things to us. It does not flatter us. It tells us the truth. It does not lie. It does not appeal to our flesh. And so we pray, would you fill us with your spirit to hear your word implanted, that we would receive it. We would receive it as that which is able to save our souls. Your word says the grass withers and the flower fades. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So speak your word to us now. Watch over your word to perform it in our hearts, in this church and others like it and in your world. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. Today's reigning worldview can be summed up in hashtags like you do you. Follow your heart, live your truth. All you have to have is a social media account. You have heard those things a thousand times a day. Because, of course, social media is the new microphone where we broadcast self. The new canvas where we paint our self-portrait. Where we insist that others recognize the version of self that we project. There's a feeling of power to the idea that perhaps I can create myself in my own image, after my own likeness. Better yet, maybe I can create God in my own image, after my own likeness. Still better, maybe I myself am the only God I need. Maybe I can create my own beauty, my own truth. Maybe if I am just authentic enough to my inner self, I won't have to be accountable to anybody else. And the only standard anyone else will be able to hold me to is the standard I set for myself. And I will set that just low enough that I can meet it and just high enough that I can retain a modicum of respectability in the eyes of others. And 
Maybe reality is not external to me, not objective, not there to be discovered. It's not existing outside me, impinging on me, whether I like it or not. Maybe reality is only what I make it. Maybe I can create whatever reality there is. And maybe if I'm the one who creates my own reality, then my reality will have to be obediently bent towards whatever I desire most at the time. And maybe, hopefully, when I get to the end of my life, whatever reality I've constructed will welcome me into its docile, comforting arms. And I will rest in the peace that I have created for myself. Those are the wishful musings of the modern mind. That's what you wish were true. But if you ask advice from the non-Christian king Herod Agrippa in Acts 12, he would tell you from hell that you do you is going to come back to bite you quite literally, in his case. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 12, 1 to 24. Acts 12, 1 to 24. I'm going to read it for us out loud all the way through, and then we'll walk through it piecemeal and grab a couple applications before we end. Acts 12, 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But... Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandal. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, from Judea to Caesarea, and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So, that's in the Bible. This guy got eaten by worms. So about the time the prophets from Jerusalem came down to Antioch at the end of chapter 11, Herod, king of Judea, started a violent oppression or persecution of the church in Jerusalem. This is not Herod Antipas, who presided when Jesus was crucified. And it's not Herod Agrippa II who heard Paul's defense later in Acts. This is Herod Agrippa I. And he is at least culturally Jewish, according to tradition. He executes James, and Luke specifies that he did it with a sword. He probably had James beheaded, just like Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded. Jewish tradition considered beheading a shameful death fit only for apostates and murderers, and so Herod Agrippa here may have been identifying with his Jewish constituents in viewing the Christians and their leaders and their movement as a heretical sect that deserved capital punishment and a shameful death, beheading. In other words, Herod through James to his constituents as red meat for his political base. And it worked. In fact, it worked so well that in verse 4, he decided, well, let's do it again. This is good stuff. This is good policy. This is making my base happy. Let's arrest Peter and do the same thing to him. And by the time he gets around to arresting Peter, though, it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that merged into Passover, so Herod decides not to desecrate the feast by shedding blood. Ah, how pious. But that little providence buys Peter a little time, and it's all the time God needs. Of course, Peter has flown the coop once before in chapter 5. It's hard to keep Peter in prison. Which may be why Herod takes precautions here with four squads of four guards on rotating prisoner watch. That's 16 guards. Four in a squad, rotating all night, dedicated to Peter the repeat offender. Peter the prison breaker. Again, Herod's intention was to lead Peter out 
to the people after Passover to let them pass judgment over him and ask for his execution so that he could be the political hero giving the people what they want. That's Herod's plan. And then in verse 5, Luke drops a narrative knowledge nugget on you to set you up. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Fear not. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. People are praying. Well, if earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church, then it's about to go down. Verse 6 to 11, the way Luke puts it in verse 6, the prison break happens literally just in time, the night before Herod was going to lead Peter out to hear the mob sentence for, for apostasy. But Peter's not praying like the church. Isn't this interesting? Peter's not praying. <laughs> Peter fell asleep. He's not singing like Paul and Silas would later in prison. He's not evangelizing the guards. Peter is sawing logs. He's snoring. Now, I don't know if that's because he's so good at trusting God through adversity like Jesus was, fast asleep in the hull of the boat during the cyclone on the Sea of Galilee, or whether Peter is sleeping like he slept in Gethsemane because he's sad about what he thinks is about to happen. I don't know. Either way, Luke is not painting P Peter as the hero. I mean, if this were propaganda for the church, we would read, Peter was on his knees praying all night and evangelizing the guards, and the guards were converted, and Peter, you know, sprouted wings and became an angel or something. There's nothing sensational about this. There's nothing, there's no hero worship. This is not hagiography. This is not an overly favorable biography of the saints. This is history. He's just telling you like it is. Peter's sleeping. He's between two soldiers, bound with two chains, with guards outside the door. That's another setup. Look at all Peter has going against him. No way in the world Peter's getting out of this one, right? Sixteen guards, two chains, iron gates. Until verse 7. And behold, and look, Watch, but anytime you see the word behold, just translate it, watch this, bro. Look at what happens next. You're not going to believe this. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, not in response to Peter's prayer, but while Peter was sleeping. Peter doesn't even know what he's seeing. And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Now look at this interaction between the angel and Peter in verses 7 and 8. Angel tells him, get on his feet. Chains fall off his hand. Peter still doesn't know what to do, so the angel keeps talking. Dress yourself and put... What do you think I'm here for, man? Would you get dressed? Get up. It's like he's talking to my 12-year-old. Get out of bed, man. Get dressed. What do you think I'm here for? You got, you got somewhere to be, buddy. Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he did so. He submitted to him. It's, it's, it's painting Peter like, what do I got to I got to hold your hand through the whole thing? I got I to gotta spell it all out for you? I'm here to get you out of prison. 
put your clothes on. Dress yourself, put your sandals on. And he did so. By that time, you'd think Peter would get it. He doesn't get it. He gets dressed, puts on his sandals, and it appears that he needs further instruction from the angel. Oh, now what I should do? I don't know. What, do, what should I do now? Peter's kind of slow on the uptake here. He doesn't get it. He gets dressed, puts on his sandals. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Put your coat on now. Now you've got to put your coat on. I mean, this reminds me of my daily routine with my children in my back hallway. Put your coat on. Where are your shoes? Where are your socks? Can't find your coat? Come on, man. So he does it. Peter just keeps on obeying. Walks him right through it. Peter thinks, though, he's dreaming again like he was in Joppa at the Tanner's house. This has got to be a vision. He's thinking, an angel, I'm getting dressed. It looks like I'm getting out of jail, but I can't imagine that that's true. So here in verse 10, they pass the first and second guards. They get to the iron gate, which opens automatically. They go about a city block, and suddenly Peter's all by himself, free as a bird. <laughs> I mean, I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall or just standing around on the street when that happened. Like, <laughs> how did I get out here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm out. Only now does it dawn on him, well, that just happened. That was actually real. I wasn't dreaming. I'm not in jail anymore. But he puts it theologically, of course. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter has just escaped imprisonment and execution. It's like he has experienced a mini exodus and a mini resurrection all at the same time. Now, what's the first thing Peter does when he realizes what God has done for him? Does he go out and preach an evangelistic sermon? Does he go talk to his mom? Does he go find his wife and kids? I'm okay, guys. Nope. He goes to Mary's house where a lot of Christians were gathered together. And what were they doing there? Chewing the fat? Talking about the game they saw last night? Talking about the Olympics? Shop talk? Nope. They were praying. They were praying together. Mary was probably pretty well off to have a big enough house to host a big prayer gathering. There were many Christians praying there, not just a few. She also had a servant who answered the outer gate. So Mary is not a poor woman. She's got a big house with an outer gate and a servant to receive guests, but when Rhoda, the servant girl, approaches the gate, she recognizes Peter's voice, and she's so overjoyed that she goes back to tell everybody else in the house without opening the door for Peter to come in. I mean, you're supposed to look at that and be like, hmm. <laughs> Some of the scholars rightly point out the irony there. The iron gate out from the prison opens on its own to free Peter, but now he can't get past the gate into the house where everybody of his fellow church members are praying for him. The gate that was keeping him in opened by itself. And the only gate that's keeping him out is the one where all of his friends are inside. And you can't help but laugh. I mean, here's the Apostle Peter. Just broken out of jail for a second time. He's left out in the cold by a servant girl who's so excited to see him, she runs to tell him the praying church without unlocking the door for him. So he's sitting there with a door in his face like, uh, I'll just wait here then, I guess, Rhoda. <laughs> but the irony is thicker than just the iron bars and the iron gates. When Rhoda tells the church 
in Mary's house that Peter is standing at the gate, they tell her she's out of her gourd. They, they pat her on the head. It's very condescending. <laughs> oh, Rhoda. <laughs> I guess you just don't know how prayer works. Peter's not there. It doesn't work like that, honey. Come here. But that's kind of rich, isn't it? I mean, they've all been praying earnestly to God for Peter, but when Rhoda comes and tells them that their prayers are answered, they say she's the one who's being irrational? I mean, do they believe in the power of prayer or not? Again, if this were propaganda, you would expect a whole different reaction from the church. Oh, of course God answered our prayer, because we're righteous and we're right and we're wise. And God always answers our prayer because we're Christians. Of course he did, Rhoda. Bring them on in. Not what you see. It's almost disparaging to the Christians, as if they were praying faithlessly. Do they think God's listening or not? Of all the people in this scene, notice this, of all the people in this scene, the servant girl is the only one who actually knows what's going on. The apostle thought he was dreaming until he finds himself in the middle of the street. The church now thinks Rhoda is seeing a ghost or an angel, and it's the little servant girl who has to set the whole congregation straight. Well, this is what you were praying for, wasn't it? He's here. I'm not the crazy one. Y'all are. Come see for yourself. Of course, the proof is in the pudding. Peter's still standing outside, knocking at the gate. Well, if he's not out there, then who's knocking? It's like the whole congregation eventually hears him knocking, asks them to let him in, and when they all come out to see him, they're so lit up and loud that Peter has to, hey, okay, 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 okay. Which, even that is an evidence of an eyewitness testimony. How did he know that Peter motioned with his hand. He tells them how the Lord answered their prayers, and then in verse 17, Peter makes his escape. Luke says almost cryptically, it's almost anticlimactic to us. Then he departed and went to another place. <laughs> what? I would have expected, and then he preached a magnificent sermon but he doesn't do that. He departed and went to another place. The idea is probably that Peter cannot afford to stick around because he already knows what we don't discover until verse 19. Herod's looking for him. What happened to my prisoner? I was going to execute him this morning, and now I can't find him. So Peter leaves, not randomly, but because he's hiding from Herod. Sun rises next morning, verse 18, soldiers wake up and their prisoner is nowhere to be found. Apparently the angel had put them into a super sleep when he busted Peter out. And you can almost see the smirk on Luke's face as he says, and there was no little disturbance among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. I'll bet not. You lose a, a prisoner like that, and you lose your life as a soldier. And that's exactly what happened. Herod made an example of the gate guards by executing them on the spot. That is not uncommon. 
That was just Roman law doing what Roman law did. But here's, there's a play on words that lets you know a theme that's percolating under the surface. The translation put to death, that's a great translation. It's interpretive, it's what Luke means. It does clarify what Herod intended to do, but he ordered that they be put to death, but that word Luke uses is literally, he ordered that they be led away, led away. Now, led away, of course, to death for losing Herod's prisoner. But the theme of leadership has been brewing since verse 4, when Herod intended to lead Peter out to the people for mob sentencing. Then in verse 6, when Herod was about to lead Peter out, the angel beats Herod to the punch. The angel is the one who leads Peter out, and Peter follows. The gate opens, leads him out into the city, and as soon as Peter comes to, he says, The Lord led me out from prison. So when Herod commands that his own soldiers be led away to death, Luke wants you to see the irony of that too. Herod was about to lead Peter out to his death. Instead, the angel leads Peter out to freedom. Peter credits the Lord with leading him out of the prison. And who does Herod lead to death instead? His own prison guards. Aha! Who got the last laugh there? Who's really in the lead in this little scene? It ain't Herod. It's not the king. It's the king of kings. The Lord brought Herod's evil back on his own servants, and now the Lord's going to bring Herod's evil all the way back down on his own head. Verses 20 to 23, the scene changes in verse 20, but we're still in the same act. Herod goes off to Caesarea, the administrative capital of Judea, and he's irate with the self-governed cities of Tyre and Sidon for some reason that Luke doesn't think relevant to mention. They plead for peace with him. They use a connection that they have with Herod's chamberlain, which is just a personal attendant who sees to Herod's private life. These cities were rich with natural resources like gold and silver and purple dye, but they needed to trade all that for imported food, and Judea was a major supplier, and Herod was the king of Judea. So Herod assembles their delegates at Caesarea, gives them something like a glorified town hall address. He's been mad, so he's probably saying, you know what, you guys don't get any food. I'm not sending any food. I don't care how much gold and silver and purple dye you send me. I'm not sending you food until you do what I want. And they're like, hey, have a little mercy, will you? So they get in good with the king's chamberlain. He gives them an oration, an address. And the people are apparently so desperate for Herod's cooperation that they flatter him as if he's a god. What a speech! Jewish historian Josephus records this very instance in one of his Jewish histories, and his account is pretty consistent with Acts 12. The kind of flattery was pretty common from people to leaders, but considering Herod Agrippa's recent history with Peter, the Lord had had enough of him. So in verse 23, without any embellishment or sensationalizing, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. For the circumstance, that's pretty matter-of-fact reporting. 
And again, there's irony here. This is the same word for struck. The angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, that Luke used when the angel of the Lord struck Peter. The angel strikes Peter to wake him up to save him, whereas the angel strikes Herod in order to judge him. And when Herod breathed his last, that's the same verb used for the death of Ananias when he lied to the apostles about how much money he was really giving. The angel is judging Herod Agrippa here for accepting worship, just like he judged Ananias for lying, even though Herod Agrippa is not a member of the church or a believer in Jesus. Translation, you can't just say, I don't believe in Jesus, and then not be accountable to his judgment. You're still accountable to his judgment no matter what you reject about Jesus. He's still him, no matter what you think or don't think about him. God disciplines Herod as an unbeliever, just as easily as he disciplined Ananias as a believer. There's one God, one truth, one reality, one world, one standard, one righteousness. Herod is eaten by worms. That doesn't mean a scene like you'd see in a horror movie where it happens right while he's standing there and worms just slither up all over his body and eat him in front of everyone. That's not probably what happened. That might be what we wish happened to him. Maybe that's how you view it in your quiet time. It's like, oh, it's a horror movie. What probably happened, and maybe that happened, but what probably happened is that he contracted some form of gangrene or some kind of flesh disorder and maggots began eating away at him over the next hours and days. And this is not weird, okay? I, that looks weird to me and you. Worms ate him and died? Come on, man. Come on. No, you come on. This happened to other people. The Roman historians Herodotus Pliny the Elder and Lucian of Samosata all testify to death by maggots in other cases. This is real. This is historical. So Luke is not sensationalizing or falsifying or saying anything even outlandish here. It's hard to do better than Luke Timothy Johnson's summary of Herod's demise. Once more, he says, this is a wonderful sentence, once more the reader finds the narrative fulfilling the prophecy of Mary in Luke 1.52, he has pulled down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted the lowly. Mm. But it is, again, very ironic. Acts 12.24 is one of the biggest contrasts in Scripture. Herod came within hours of executing one of the strongest leaders of the Jerusalem church and then in a stunning reversal... Peter goes free, Herod executes his own soldiers, and an angel strikes Herod with literal stomach bugs. And verse 24 says, like the icing on the cake, but, haha, the word of God increased and multiplied, just like the bugs that ate Herod. That's right. The Word of God doesn't care about Herod's rejection of the Word of God or of the, his rejection of the people of God. It just keeps on ticking. You can't stop it just because you stop believing it. 
and just because you try to stop the people who preach it. It grows. It keeps growing. That word multiplied is important. Herod started out in verse 3, killing James, and when he saw how well that went over with his constituents, he proceeded, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Again, great translation, nothing wrong with that. But that word for proceeded is also used as a mathematical term, added. Like when the Lord added to their number 3,000 souls at the beginning, same word, prostathamy. He added to this. Herod added one apostle to his tally, but he couldn't even keep him, Peter. Meanwhile, God's word doesn't just add, it multiplies. This whole thing is bracketed by mathematical terms. That is brilliant. Herod added to James Peter, or tried to, but then God subtracted Peter from Herod's tally and multiplied his own word. Mm. That's some strong stuff. I love it. That's why you want to read the Bible. Now, what is the point of all this? We, so what? Well, here's what. If you write anything down, write this down. God rescues his people from political oppression to reverse our fortunes for gospel growth. God rescues his people from political oppression. Herod's a king. To reverse our fortunes for gospel growth. That's how Peter put it. The Lord rescued me. And I know it. God is the one leading here, not Herod, not Peter, not the church, not Rhoda, not even the angel. God is the one who leads his word and people to grow despite politicized persecution. Everything looks bleak at the outset, does it not? The administration is not friendly to Christians or churches. Sound familiar? Herod comes this close to winning. But the risen Christ is still at work confirming his, conforming his people to his image, conforming their experience even to his. He's leading his people out in a new exodus to a new resurrection to multiply his people and to grow the effects of his gospel among his churches throughout all the earth. He doesn't need friendly politicians to do that. As powerful and popular as Herod Agrippa was with everybody who hated the church, as close as he came to killing Peter, Herod was powerless to stop the gospel's progress through the church's preaching, ministry, numerical growth, and prayers. Herod tried to oppress God's people and steal God's glory. He tried to add Peter to his conquest of James. No matter, God says. You do your worst, Agrippa. Do your worst. God brings Herod to a sudden halt, eaten by worms. Ah, you think you're going to dishonor my servant Peter, like you did James, and giving him a shameful death? 
How about I give you a shameful death? You get eaten by worms. This, this is the real God who is in the real heaven with whom you really have to do. And if you want to reject him, that's your business. But get ready, because he doesn't play. You can't take him. You can't outsmart him. You think you're smarter than him. You think he's going to play by your rules? You have no idea who you're dealing with. This is how he treats kings. You're no king. Don't mess with him. A few applications. First application is theological. Theological application. God is in control of the gospel's progress and the church's success. God's in control of this thing. Not you, not me. God is in control. Not a search engine. God is in control. God is even sovereign over letting James die and setting Peter free. Now, we cannot know why God let James die. He doesn't tell us that, and he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe us an explanation of letting James die. But it is clear from Acts 12 that if God wanted to save James, then he could have and he would have because he saved Peter from the exact same threat as James suffered. As powerful as political leaders like Herod can be, as much damage as they may do, they are not outside God's control. Church, that means that we can trust God to rescue us at the right time, in the right way, by the right means, from all that threatens to undo us from the outside. And if God wants to take us home like he took James home, then that is God's business. And it is an even greater salvation for James because God is using death to save us out of this world and into the next. And this is why Christians of all people should not be upset about political leaders like Herod who still exist today. Christian, I don't want to hear you talking as if the sky's falling because your guy didn't get in the White House or into Springfield. That's the most ridiculous way, the most self-contradictory way for Christians to think and act. Don't post like that on your Facebook account. Stop doing that. Oh, no, now what? What do you mean, now what? Now God, that's what. God is going to work with and through this to prove his glory. That's what. The sky is not falling, not yet. The sky will fall. We read that in Revelation 6. The sky will fall when Jesus brings it down. Then the sky will fall. And he knows how to save his people. So stop acting like the sky is already falling. Act like you believe in the God of the Bible. He's sovereign. And he deals with Herods all the time. He's been dealing with them for millennia. You're new here. <laughs> I'm new here. God's been dealing with this for a long time. God doesn't need a theocracy to save and sanctify his people. 
He's never needed it. Now, it's not that we don't care about public justice. We do care. You want to serve in Congress? You want to run for office? You want to serve on a local committee or council? Do it. Do it. Pursue public justice. That's great. We do care, but we care without being anxious. We care without worrying. We care without wondering who's going to win or what's going to happen to the cause of Christ and His church if we don't win. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Read Revelation. It's unmistakable. It's so unmistakable, it's scary. That's probably why I haven't read it in a while. Jesus wins. He wins big. He wins complete. He wins final. Herod is just acting the part of the beast. But we know Babylon is going down to hell. New Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. And there's nothing that Herod or anybody else can do about it. You are on the right side of history and eternity. So Christian, trust in God. Don't be anxious for anything. Pray. God always comes through in the clutch for his people. Just wait for it. Wait for it. Christological application. Christ-centered application. Peter had all but died. He's getting ready to be beheaded the next morning. And his escape looks a lot like what God did for Jesus in his death and resurrection. Scholars have noticed that Luke tells Peter's story of escape a lot like he told Jesus' story of resurrection. Both are condemned by a ruler named Herod. Jesus' tomb is heavily guarded by soldiers who cannot contain him, just like Peter in jail. And women announce Jesus' resurrection to the disciples in Luke 24, but the disciples don't believe those women any more than the church believed Rhoda about Peter. It's the same scenario. Luke intends Peter's escape as a testimony to Jesus' resurrection. God intends that. It's like Peter is reliving Jesus' resurrection as a testimony to the risen Christ's power and glory. The risen Christ is now working a mini-resurrection for his trusting people, and their mini-resurrections testify to Jesus' major resurrection. Peter's release means Jesus is still alive. And he's still doing this kind of stuff. Jesus is king of all kings, including Herod. Jesus is God. Herod is not. Jesus' resurrection is real. It has real and ongoing effects among his people. And resistance to Jesus is futile, even for a powerful politician like Herod. Now, do you act like you believe that? And do you prioritize your week like you believe these things? Gospel implication. The implication of all this Jesus talk is that the Christian gospel, the message about Jesus, is both real and irrepressible. Acts 12 is in the Bible, preserved for you in Scripture, preached for you in church this morning in your language to convince you and assure you that the good news of Jesus Christ risen for the forgiveness of sins and for your justification by faith alone, in Him alone, that message is real. And that message is for you today. 
You should believe this. That's why Acts 12 is here. For you. That's why you're here sitting in the pew that you are right now. You should believe Acts 12. You should believe the Christ of Acts 12. God's talking to you. I'm tired of people saying, well, I wish God would just show me something. I wish God would just show up. I wish he'd tell me something. I wish he'd speak. I wish he'd prove himself. Hey, man, what are you doing with your Bible? He has done it. Acts 12 is right there. It's translated into your language. And you're going to sit there and say, well, you know, that stuff really hasn't happened for me particularly, so I can't believe that. Well, if it happened all the time, then what? Then you'd be like, well, that happens all the time. Then you wouldn't believe it because it happens all the time. Come on, man. This is here to convince you to believe it. You're going to find an excuse not to believe it. you got to believe this. This is your chance. This is God speaking to you. Hey, I'm here. I've been here. I show up. I save. I redeem. I rescue. And I send worms to eat bad kings for you. Because I love you. I care about you. And I want you to experience me as your king of kings and your lord of lords and your heavenly father who will never forsake you, who will always love you, who will always come through in the clutch for you, who understands you because he created you. So why don't you just drop it? Hmm? Drop it. Believe this. That's why it's here. He can break the power of your sins. He can free you from your bondage. Trust in Christ. Peter's release is the promise, but Herod's demise is the warning. If you don't believe the message of Christ in real life, in this life, then you will realize it all too late in the world to come when you meet Herod in hell. Don't let that be you. Turn from your unbelief, trust in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. This book has more power to explain you and your world to yourself than you have. You can't explain, you still can't explain yourself to yourself, can you? You're trying. You can't explain yourself to yourself. You don't know why you do what you do. You have no idea. You have no idea why you sin, do you? Why do you do the stuff you don't want to do? Hmm? This book will tell you. But you've got to believe it. You don't want to relate to somebody who doesn't take you for who you are. You don't want to relate to somebody who doesn't take you at your word. I'm just asking you, extend the same courtesy to God and Christ. Hmm? Take him at his word. Church application. Church application. I'm warning you, this is going to hit close to home. Our corporate prayer is indispensable as a means to the gospel's growth and multiplication among us. It is not optional for us to pray together. It is indispensable. Look again at how Luke bookends the prison break itself with corporate prayer. Peter is in prison in verse 5, but earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church, and once Peter gets out in verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, where many were gathered together and were praying. Many, not just a few, many. 
Now, that's not just local color. That's causation. It's not even just correlation. It's causation. And this was one of many prayer meetings. Because remember how Acts begins? It says they were devoting themselves. Devoting themselves to prayer. That's ongoing. And it worked. Now, what do you think Luke wants you to do with that? Hmm? Don't keep asking, well, how should I apply it? I don't know how to apply it. Yeah, you do. You know. You just don't want to hear it. He wants you to commit to corporate prayer with your local church. That's what he wants you to do. I know you don't want to hear that. I know you hear me harping on it all the time. There's a reason for that. Because it's right here. Jesus is building this church, not us. I'm not building this church. Is that what you think is going on here? I'm building this church? No, no, no. The elders are building it. Jesus is building it. Now, what does that mean? That means we better ask him nicely. That's what it means. Let's ask him to do it. We are preaching the gospel and doing evangelism in order to make disciples of all the nations. That is supernatural work. We're not just building a business here or a club. Jesus is building his church. And that requires supernatural power prayed down from heaven in corporate prayer. We are not exempt from needing to pray together. You are not exempt from that. I am not exempt from that. No church is exempt from that, even though many churches consider themselves exempt from that because they don't have prayer meetings. Now look, why is Acts 12 so encouraging to you, brother, sister? Why is it so encouraging? Why does it make you smile? It's precisely because Luke presents the jailbreak as a specific answer to the church's specific prayers. That's why. Prayer prevailed over politics. Acts 12 is in the Bible to encourage us to devote ourselves to corporate prayer like the early church did because prayer works, because prayer is efficient. Prayer is productive. God listens to our gathered prayers and he responds to us in saving acts of mercy. We are starting to see the Lord answer our prayers to add to our numbers. Let's lean into that together. We're starting to see him answer our prayers for greater holiness and greater love. Let's lean into that together. He's already doing it. We have a prayer meeting here on Sunday nights and we're here even when you're not. There's an empty pew waiting for you here. And we notice it because we love you. And we want you here. You belong here with us on Sunday nights. I know you've got a busy week. So did these people. You think these people didn't have a busy week? Some of them were slaves, for crying out loud. Are you a slave? They made time for the prayer meeting. They were tired. They had house projects. 
They had big jobs, long hours, sore backs. And here they are. Wasn't too much for them. And they didn't have a dishwasher. At least part of God's will for your week is for you to participate with us in corporate prayer. Unless, of course, you prayed too much last week. Let me guess, you're overdoing it in your prayer life and that's why you're not coming on Sunday nights? Said no Christian ever? Be honest, what better things are many of you doing with your Sunday night at home besides praying with the congregation for the purposes of God to be realized in us and in the world? I don't care if you're reading a good book on prayer at home. That's not as good as being here with us actually praying. There is nothing better I can be doing here with a Sunday night than praying with you. I can't be doing any better, anything better at home than I would be on a Sunday night and praying with you. I want and need to be devoted to corporate prayer with you. And the simple truth is, I literally cannot be committed to corporate prayer without you. So why should you commit to gathering with us for corporate prayer? Well, because Jesus does. Jesus gathers with us for corporate prayer. Hmm? Did he not promise this? Where two or three of you are gathered, there am I in the midst of you. That's Matthew 18, not about watching a movie or a ball game or chewing the fat, but maintaining Christ's name. Where you're gathered in my name, for my purposes, for my priorities, for my word, for my people, there. There am I in the midst of you. Jesus is here every Sunday night at 5 o'clock sharp. He's never late. The prayer meeting is where we learn of God's work among us. We learn how to pray by hearing others pray. We grow in love for Christ and others. It's where we sympathize and rejoice with each other. It's where we ask God for spiritual counsel, renewal, revival. Praying together strengthens our unity, but only if we all show up. Most importantly, the prayer meeting expresses to God our total reliance on his power for any good fruit from our life and ministry as a church. It's where we come together once a week to show our agreement with Jesus that apart from him, we can do a little bit, do all right. We can do nothing, nothing. And when Jesus comes to our prayer meeting, he wants to see you. He wants to see you. It's all too easy to complain about our own experience in this church or to lament the condition of other churches, but Spurgeon said it himself. We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. You cannot disdain the prayer meeting as a mere inconvenience to your week. Spurgeon was a prince of preachers, and he did not trust in the power of his own preaching. He trusted in the power of the congregation's prayers. This room is not nearly as full on Sunday nights as it is on Sunday mornings. And that means there is some element of self-reliance still operating among us that we need to put to death as a congregation. What are we relying on? if it's not prayer. There is something we don't yet 
get about the Christian life, which is that real effectiveness in ministry can only happen if we are not relying on our own efforts, but on God's power to answer prayer. And when he does answer prayer, what happens? You don't get arrogant. You praise God that he answers prayer. It's the only way he's going to do this is if we can't take credit for it. Christian members of Grace Covenant, heads of households especially, men, I'm talking to you. You should be just as committed to praying with us as you are to listening to these sermons. Otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels here. Brothers, I came across this phrase in my quiet time in 2 Chronicles 9, 13 this week. A group referred to as mighty men for the work of the service of the house of the Lord. <laughs> That's awesome. Mighty men for the work of the service of the house of the Lord. We want that to be true of you as a man of God and as a man of public prayer. Brothers, I would cancel every other study and meeting except Sunday mornings if it meant regular participation from you and your leadership of your families to this room on Sunday nights. I'd cancel everything else. That's how important it is for us to express total reliance on God together in corporate prayer for the church and its ministries. If we want to be like the church in Acts, everybody talks about this. Modern Christians talk about this. Oh, we've got to get back to the church in Acts. We've got to get back to the church in Acts. Why aren't we as powerful as the church in Acts? Well, do you pray as much as they did? These Christians in Acts had jobs and families and worries and sorrows and cares and pressures just like me and you. They showed up anyway, and Jesus cared for their cares. This is an issue of faith, Christian. Do you believe prayer is worth it or not? Do you believe God will enable you to get your work done in six days if you give him the first one? Maybe that's the issue. Not one of these Christians at the prayer meeting in Mary's house in Acts 12 is complaining in heaven now that they wasted too much time or energy at prayer meetings. Nobody in heaven is like, ah, sorry God, I went to too many prayer meetings. I should have worked harder. I should have made more money. I should have got more sleep. I should have taken a nap more often. I should have stayed in, on the couch that Sunday afternoon, and instead I went to that prayer meeting. Sorry. Nobody says that. Attending prayer meetings is treasure in heaven. You're just stacking it up, man. It's a risk-free investment that pays infinite interest and eternal dividends. You shouldn't be asking, why would I commit to that? You should be asking, where do I sign up? Jesus is not too tired to show up on Sunday nights, and he's busy running the universe. <laughs> he's here when you're not. Just remember that. Public application, Christianity needs no political favors. Herod Agrippa was merciless to James and would have been to Peter, but Christ prevailed without Herod's good opinion. Herod went to his grave thinking Christianity was the bane of the empire. Meanwhile, the world, the word of God has been increasing and multiplying for 2,000 years. So Christian, it's all well and good for us to defend religious freedom and tax exemptions for churches but it's unbecoming for Christians to act as if the loss of religious freedom or the loss of the tax exemption or the wrong person in the White House or the wrong people in the Supreme Court would spell the end of the church. 
Christians should never talk like that. Jesus is coming back. He will bring the sky down. And when he does, he will hold all people accountable, believers and unbelievers alike, even unbelieving politicians like Herod Agrippa. God has handed all judgment over to Jesus, and he will hold all unbelievers accountable for stealing his glory and mistreating his people. Herod didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't read his New Testament. He didn't go to church. And yet Christ, the Christ of the Bible, held Herod accountable. How? How is that so? How could he possibly hold an unbeliever accountable? He didn't believe in him. Conscience. That's how. Because God's law was written on Herod's heart. Every person is made in God's image. And that image is a moral and spiritual image. God's law is simply the verbal expression of his character and its standard equipment on every human model. We all know better than to suppress that knowledge. And it is that innate knowledge of God, the image of God written on our hearts, speaking to us from the voice of conscience that is the basis of our accountability to God. It is this innate knowledge of God that we have willfully ignored or suppressed or argued against, but it will not go away. We have effaced God's image in ourselves, that's true, but we cannot erase it and we cannot escape it. It will not go away. God has literally made you, he has created you to be accountable to him. So don't follow in Herod's footsteps. Don't wait too late to recognize your accountability to God for how you treat Jesus and his people. We've got to close. The good news is that God rescues his people from political oppression to reverse our fortunes for gospel growth. He either does that by taking us home to himself, as he did for James, or he does it by answering our prayers, by performing a mini exodus, a mini resurrection for us on our way to the celestial city. One day, God will send Jesus to rescue us once and for all into his eternal kingdom where he will make all things right and new for us, for his glory, where he will avenge the blood of his saints and where he will live with us and walk with us and bless us forever. Make no mistake, God will have the last laugh over those who ignore his truth and abuse his people. Remember, remember, Herod was eaten by worms. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel at your power and your love, your compassion, your knowledge, your mercy, your goodness, your control over all things, and your will for your ways and your gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ to multiply and expand and grow. And so we pray, would you do that through this church? Would you do it through your answers to our prayers? And when you do it, may we have no recourse but to say that you answered our prayers. You did this in response to us asking you to do it. May it be undeniable. May it give us all the more reason to praise and trust you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.